Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi there, you're listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. The act of documenting and following someone else's life is one of the hardest challenges producers face in their work. Relationships intensify, stories change, sometimes drastically, and the line between the personal and professional can begin to blur. In this session called Documenter and Documentee from the 2007 Third Coast Conference, a producer was invited to talk with a person whose story they followed and told. They discussed the struggles they faced together throughout the process and what they've learned from each other throughout the experience. This second part of Documenter and Documentee is moderated by Joe Richmond, the creator of Radio Diaries, and it features NPR's Michelle Norris and Sharon White, the subject of two stories Norris produced during the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Here is Documenter and Documentee, part two. Good morning, everybody. This, is, uh, this session is called Documenter Documentee. I don't know if any of you were at the session yesterday, but um, it's the... Same principle, but very different story and very different issues, I think. Um, the way I started uh, talking about yesterday's se- session, I said that in, in every story and in every interview, there's sort of a dance that happens in the relationship between subject and, and reporter and as they negotiate the relationship. And it, it really is a relationship. I think in this story in particular today, that relationship is not just between interviewer and subject, but it also involves the audience. And um, the two women you'll meet in a moment... Um, all Things Considered host Michelle Norris and Hurricane Katrina, Katrina survivor, as she likes to say, uh, Sharon White, met each other by chance in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And over, since over the last two years, All Things Considered has checked in with Sharon, and she's really become sort of the face of, uh, of Hurricane Katrina for NPR listeners. So we're going we're to play a few of those pieces over the next hour and a half and um, sprinkle them through. And let's start with the way that both uh, Michelle and also NPR listeners met Sharon White. The victims of Hurricane Katrina got word of more help today from the federal government. They will get debit cards worth $2,000 to help them get by. The EPA issued a warning about the floodwater in New Orleans. It is so toxic that anyone left in the city, residents and rescue workers, should try to avoid it. That's just one of the reasons that there's an extra push today to get the last of the people out. For the thousands of families that are already in shelters away from the city, their immediate goals are simple. 
their next meals, their next shower, where they plan to sleep. It will be months, perhaps even years, before all of New Orleans is habitable again. But eventually, former residents will have to make a decision: do they return and help rebuild their battered city, or do they start fresh in another city or another state? Our colleague Michelle Norris spent time in Baton Rouge today, talking with former New Orleans residents who face that choice. Along Highway 12 in Baton Rouge, the Estrema Baptist Church is a massive sanctuary surrounded by a moat of empty pavement. It's a church that looks to be in midweek hibernation. That is, until you realize that 600 people are housed there inside a temporary shelter. Estrema's Children's Center is a buzz with new arrivals, and the broad steps leading up to the building have been transformed into one big front porch. People are playing cards, reading the Bible, smoking cigarettes, and letting children work off steam. A woman leans over the head of a man who was a stranger until just hours ago. She's using body lotion to oil his scalp. I, I'm loving it, loving it. We got to help each other. You know what I'm saying? We in this crisis together, baby. You know, and we all got to look out for one another. We are one big family. Many here are desperate to find their actual family members, blood relatives whose fate is uncertain. Lakeisha Robinson, would you call your mama Sheila? Lakeisha Robinson, call your mama Sheila. Please call me. I miss y'all. Sheila Robertson Caston has been separated from her only daughter and her grandchildren for a week. She was the last person left in her apartment in the Melopomini projects when the water rose and fast. She hitched a ride out of the city and found herself at the Estrema shelter with little more than the clothes on her back. I don't have anything, anything, nothing. I have the I have the eighty cents you left me, Keisha. That shit, eighty cents. I'm holding on to that. I never spend it till I find them. Sheila Caston is fifty years old, and before this, she had never left the city of New Orleans. She's been offered temporary housing in Los Angeles, but she'd have to leave in the next few days. And what if there's still no word from her daughter? Tough choices. Out on the front lawn, another woman in a bright orange cap sits off by herself, under a tree, rubbing her temples with well manicured nails. Belinda Bruce got out of New Orleans before Katrina smacked the city. She escaped with her boyfriend and six daughters. Newly homeless and cut off from her extended family, the nursing assistant is trying to figure out how to explain the disaster and the displacement to her children. I really can't explain it to them, but just say that maybe it was for the best. For the best. Yes, because I'm more happier. What I can say, homeless. <laughs> Help me understand that you. You're sitting here at a shelter. Your house is most likely underwater, and you're you're happier here than you were back home. Because there was so much going on in my neighborhood. Even though I was comfortable in my house, in my house, blocks up where the kids went to school, it was horrible. They always had shootouts. They just didn't respect the kids. They were selling drugs. The good thing is I'm away from that with my kids. So, and maybe they'll get into a better school, a better neighborhood. So. So when you you think about this, how how do you make sense of it now as you're sitting here and as you realize that even after the disaster, after you had leave everyone everything you loved and and a lot of people you loved behind, that you're somehow happier sitting here outside of a shelter.、Mm. I felt that God sent that there because of all the nonsense that was going on in that neighborhood and just in that 
in New Orleans spirit. There was too much of violence going on and just just a cleansing, just to clean up that city. So will you go back to New Orleans? I'm not going back. It's not an intention. I'm not going back to New Orleans. Not where I was living at. Just that easy. You'll leave everything behind, your family, your house. It was hard at first, but I'm just looking at it as a new beginning for myself and my kids. So So Belinda Bruce says she'll never go back to Elysian Fields, the neighborhood with the heavenly name that to her mind was more like the devil's playground. Inside the shelter, each person, each family will face the same choice. Do they move on or hold on to the hope of one day returning to their bathtub of a city? The actual shelter at Estruma Baptist Church, the sleeping quarters, that is, is inside the Children's Center. It's a gymnasium-sized room that looks like a giant patchwork quilt of donated blankets, bedspreads, pillows, and playpens. It's well-run, well-stocked, and well on its way to being filled to capacity. We spotted Sharon White as she was furiously sweeping up Space 26, home now to four adults and two children. Life in a shelter doesn't sit well with Sharon White, She worked her way out of the projects, brought a home, a duplex, and worked as a manager at a department store. She's what you would call house proud, despite the current state of her property. Property, my property is underwater right now. And I'm gonna rebuild that sucker, and I'm gonna make it bigger and better, and we're gonna gonna, gonna get it back together. It's easy to say that right now, but you, you know what you face in New Orleans. When that water goes down. We hear in the stories, we know a lot. A lot of these people are friends and family. I know it's going to stink. You're looking at a years probably before I can. It's probably be a year before I can even get to see my property. So if you really do want to go back and build your property bigger and better, that's going to take. It's just going to take determination. But see, you're looking at a person that's persevered through the, the hardest. I lived 11 years in the Saint Bernard Housing Project. Okay, I worked my way up. I saved. I prayed a lot, you know, and God got me out. It's not, it's, it's not about, well, it's going to take a lot. No, it's not. You get that, that insurance money, you look at it, you cry about it, and guess what? You sweep it away, and you, you bill, and you go on. Sharon White is highly upset with the media, angry about the way her city's been portrayed, and the lingering impression that New Orleans was filled only with black families dependent on welfare. You know, they keep on saying those people, if they would help themselves, and if they would do this, and if they would do that. I was one of those that was helping. I paid taxes. My taxes probably help pay for the shelter, that's that FEMA, all that stuff. I've been working all my life. And as for the question of what to call all the people who have fled New Orleans, Sharon White has some strong views on that, too. And I am not a refugee. I wasn't shipped here. I don't care if we were brought from that, that, that river center or that Superdome or wherever we being shipped. We are not refugees. You hold your head up. We are... United States citizens, and you'd be proud of that. A lot of us are taxpaying, honest, hardworking people. I'm like, when did I come from another country? That's what they used to call people that was in the boats and that was sneaking over here. I am a survivor. They need to say the survivors of Katrina. And Sharon White says there is no shame in that. In Baton Rouge, I'm Michelle Norris. I'd like to bring up uh, Michelle Norris and Sharon White. So we'll reserve some time for questions at the end. If you have a burning question, feel free to, to jump in. Um, 
Yesterday, I, I mentioned that, I mean, it, both as a listener and as a, as a radio producer, I'm kind of addicted to tape that where you feel something happening, where you're, you can experience something for yourself. And that goes for, uh, you know, building scenes and having something unfold in front of the microphone, but it also goes for just conversations where you kind of feel that someone is thinking of something or realizing something for the first time. And in the interest of trying to have some of that um, feeling happen here in this session, I was going to ask both of you, as much as you feel comfortable doing, as much as appropriate to talk to each other, ask questions of each other, um, so that hopefully not just are we learning something, but maybe you guys are kind of discovering something as well about the process of your two-year on-air relationship. Um, when, you, when you're out in a story, I'm going to ask you this first, Michelle, um, and you've got all these people and you're looking for someone to interview, as we heard in the story, it's kind of a, as a reporter, you can kind of imagine going through and seeing all these people and then, and then finding Sharon. You know, it's kind of like a cocktail party where you end up kind of gravitating <laughs> towards certain people. Um, how do you sort of find who is going to be the right talker and how did you, when did you first realize that Sharon was going to be such a person? I actually was guided by audio in this case. Sharon was, and just to paint a picture, this is the cavernous room. It's about, say, three times the size of this room, maybe even bigger. Mm -hmm. And they had, it was like a grid that they had, the Red Cross is very good at this. They'd gone in very quickly and set up this grid that was marked by, I guess, like electrical tape on the floor, and each, each family had a space. And we weren't allowed to interview inside the shelter, so what we had to do is identify people and then try to get them to go outside the shelter. You're not actually allowed to conduct interviews in a shelter. Sharon was furiously sweeping her space. And, and just to paint a picture, there's, this room is, is in great disarray. I mean, people have just been sort of thrown in here. Sharon's space, you could bounce a quarter on the cot. Um, everything, you know, the beds were made. She had these plastic bins. Everything was set up. She was listening to gospel music and sweeping her space. And I was thinking, oh, audio. We can't, we can't do the interview in here, but at least I can get some audio of her sweeping. Um, and so I approached her. What Joe knows is that Sharon didn't want to talk to me. She actually tried to sweep me away. She hit me with... <laughs> She hit me with her broom. She was very mad at the media. She says she doesn't remember this. <laughs> my producer and my audio engineer definitely remember this. And I said, if you're so angry with the media, tell us your story. And I just, um, so in this case, I just had a, sometimes you have a sense that you can, you can tell, like when you're at the cocktail party, you can look in someone's eyes and you can sense if, they're, if their spirit or if their heart is open to sharing with you. And I got that sense from Sharon, even though she had her jaws were tight and she didn't want to talk to me, but I, I could tell that there was something welled up um, inside of her and that she had something to say, and once we got her outside, boy, you heard it. She had lots to say. Why were you reluctant to talk at that point? Just all we had was a few radios if you had batteries, and for two weeks, a week and a half, all I heard was, you know, pretty much what I was saying on the piece um, about if they did this and if they, it was like they made everybody that was in this hurricane situation, um, people that was on some kind of gov- government subsidy. And it didn't portray me. I heard, I didn't hear me in it, the homeowner, the working person. And, and I was just angry too. I, I felt like I didn't do anything to be there. And I, I'm, I, um, 
I don't know. It's, it's, it just took me back. It, it took me way back, you know. What was it that, that finally convinced you? Because I, I, never, I never, I guess, really understood that. Well, when they started running you off, the, the Red Cross ladies, mm-hmm. they was running you off, and I said, and you, I, the last thing you said as you was trying to get me to come out and talk was, uh, come tell your story. You come tell it. And I said, no, just find somebody else. They got million people, million people in. <laughs> I said, just find somebody else, but tell the working person story. And he said, oh no, you're the person. I'm like, and then when they was, you know, tell, you know, because they were trying to give, they were trying to give everybody dignity in the shelter and keep it, you know, people didn't want to be interviewed. It was, it wasn't that type of situation. People didn't want to just, oh yeah, put me on the radio. You know, they was trying to keep everybody private, but. You know, I don't know, something just, I just knew I had to go back, go and I said, okay, you want to talk? I didn't know what was going to come out. And I didn't, when I heard. <laughs> can, can I just paint a picture also? This was the American Gothic interview because Sharon stood out there on the front steps with her broom <laughs> while yeah. she was talking and you had one hand going and the neck was gone and the broom was right here and it was. Um, ready to sweep position. <laughs> yes. You know, just listening to it, I didn't know I was, I, you know, it was something. I didn't even know whatever came out, that was what I was feeling at the time. You know, I don't, you know. She just told me this, you know, she just told me to tell my story, and that's what I did. And I didn't think two years later that she it would still be going on. But I am thankful, though. <laughs> now, at that point, what did you, I mean, I, I know we talked yesterday about, um, you know, you you know what you you know you didn't know what NPR was, for example. You know what did you think about what you were getting involved in? Of course, no one knew how long this would last, but just for this one interview, what did you imagine? Well, I I really thought I had never you know she said NPR Michelle and I'm like okay whatever, you know <laughs> I'm sorry it's all right. <laughs> I had never heard of NPR. Um, uh, uh, Michelle or anything. I actually thought it was something locally in Baton Rouge, but at least I thought it would hit the city. You know, New Orleans is in Baton Rouge, so somebody's going to hear it in New Orleans because everything I heard in New Orleans was negative. And uh, that's that was uh, you know. And then when they come, she she told me national public. I'm like, and then when (laughs) being honest, um, when they called me and and told me the response, it was just I'm like, what did I say? Because I didn't know. You know, I just said it. You know, I know that y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I said it, it was gone, it's finished. And then I thought about it afterwards, though. I'm like, Lord, what people going to hope I'll lose my job? Because, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't remember if I had mentioned I don't know what I said until, you know, I heard it. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we uh, go to another piece? Because I think if we can, we'll try to get to four of them. Um, and this is like a very quick follow-up. Three weeks ago, I spoke with New Orleans evacuee Sharon White at the Estruma Baptist Church Shelter in Baton Rouge. Many of you responded to White's positive spirit with phone calls and, in at least one case, financial support, for which she's deeply grateful. So grateful, in fact, that she tithed a chunk of the money to the church to help others. She remains at the shelter for the time being. The housing market is saturated in and around Baton Rouge. She did return to work this week as an hourly employee, no longer a manager. White has had some trouble, but overall, she says she's doing all right. I kind of had a little breakdown because I guess I just hadn't grieved everything. I was so adamant about going back and being strong and doing all this, and, and I just hadn't grieved. 
So I wound up talking to a psychiatrist that was there on site at the shelter, and he he pretty much diagnosed me with uh, having a control issue. And being that I'm I'm not in control of my entire situation right now, when I thought about it, because I was like, I'm not a person that just needs control, but I've always taken control over my situations. And he was right. I mean, and now I'm being told when to go to sleep, when to take a shower, because the shower's closed at 8, you know. I have no control over my job situation. You know, I was a manager in my own store. I was pretty much doing policy and procedure there, but here I'm pretty much uh, at other people's mercy. When do you get a chance to go back and see your home? Oh, um, I'm actually going back home on the 5th. I bought me a camcorder because I need to capture every moment. I'm not saying I won't cry, but I will film and I will rebuild all that. That's still in play. Ain't nothing going to stop that. I mean, any of my neighbors want to back out after they get in their insurance money, I'll be right there because my goal is to possibly get in there and see if I can get more property and bring more families back. That's what's going to drive me. You know, there's a lot of money going out right now from FEMA, Red Cross, and I'm looking, watching these people spend crazy. You're just spending and spending. My money, I'm saving most of the bunk of mine for New Orleans. Because by the time we get to New Orleans, this is one of my fears, a lot of the money, the FEMA money and all this money they're giving us to survive out here, it's going to be gone. Save some of your money, invest it back into the community, invest it back into the city. And I was going to ask you about that because when I first met you, you were adamant. You were going back. Oh. And I wondered after a few weeks if you no, still felt I, that strongly about no, it. No, after a few weeks, it, it only, uh, like I said, my breakdown wasn't because I wasn't going back. I just had to grieve the entire situation, not just the home, not the materialistic thing. Me and my kids being split up, we were always at pretty much at arm lengths of each other. You know, now my son's in Kansas, my daughter's in Texas, my mom, I still have not found my mom. We're just all over the place. And I, th- I just hadn't grieved New Orleans, period. When you see those pictures, and I know I have to go and see it on the 5th, and I know it's going to be horrible. I expect the worst. But you know what? Out of the ashes, it's going to come bigger and better. Sharon, you, you said that you haven't heard from your mother. No, I, I don't know if I want to talk about Mama, but uh, I'm trying to track her down. She was one of those special needs people, so I did list her with the missing persons, which I haven't gotten any response. But, uh, you know, they say no news is good news. Sharon, I hope you hear something about your mother Hopefully. soon. Can you share her name with us? Bessie White. Bessie White. Yes. All right. Sharon, it's been good to talk to you again. It's Take care of yourself. You, and thank all your listeners, all of them. Katrina survivor Sharon White. We'll check in with her again in coming weeks. The next story does follow the story of your mother. We could talk about it um, right now, or we could just kind of go on. But, uh, yeah, at that point, um, well, let, let me back up for a second. And, Michelle, what were the kind of what was the thinking or what were the discussions about um, latching onto Sharon as someone who you could uh, actually follow through some of this, the, the aftermath of, of Katrina? I, I just couldn't get her out of my mind. Um, we, we met her. We had flown in to Mississippi, and we were driving to Baton Rouge when we literally saw the Estrema shelter on the side of the road on the way to the, the NPR bureau that had been hastily set up in Baton Rouge. And... You know, it was, it's a reminder to me how stories just jump up and smack you in the head. I mean, we literally saw this church, and we saw a number of black people milling outside of a church in what looked to be sort of suburban Baton Rouge, and we figured they have to be evacuees. Let's go. And um, 
and I just I couldn't I couldn't forget about her, you know. And when I got back, um, of all the people that I had met, many were unforgettable. I just you know thought of Sharon, and and I I went back and I looked at the mail when I got back, and I realized, my goodness, this woman didn't just connect with me. Something, something happened on that porch outside that shelter. There was this sort of unfiltered conversation that really touched people. So I thought we would check back on her. When you heard at the, begin, at the end of that, when I said, we'll check back on you in a few weeks, uh, my producer on the other side of the glass, eyebrows, her eyebrows kind of went up and went, oh, okay. I guess. I mean, it wasn't, we hadn't talked about it at that point, but in the course of the conversation, I just realized that I want to hear from her again. So, um, and when you mentioned that your mother, Miss Bessie, was missing, I knew that we would have to follow up on that some way. So I sort of spontaneously made a decision in front of a microphone (laughs) (laughs) that we would continue. It's a good way to lock your producers and editors into into a choice. Well, we have the, I I guess, you know, it's interesting because in any story, it's really a number of stories. It's the story, it's the subject's story, it's the interviewer's story, and in this case, more than others, it's the audience's story because it's not just a sort of after the the broadcast, it's actually along the way, the audience is very much involved in the story. And so you knew you were getting all this mail early on, and of course there was more listener Involvement that led to to the next story, which maybe I should use as a cue. Can I just say something also? I don't know how many of you actually went down and covered Katrina, but it was it was really difficult to come back um, after two weeks down there and just sort of segue back into your regular life and go out to lunch and order a salad for ten dollars and ninety five cents and go have your latte and walk into. I mean, I felt. I felt tremendous guilt when I walked into my house. As happy as I was to be in my house and to see my children, it was just really, really hard for me. And so in some way I felt that if we latched on to one person, that that would help me also stay in touch with the story because I was not able as a, as a host to spend as much time in New Orleans. NPR has, had made an incredible commitment. We set up a bureau in Baton Rouge and in the city. We bought a house in New Orleans and, and kept it staffed and still keep it staffed. But it was my personal way to also sort of keep the story in front of our listeners because I realized it would be it is, as difficult as it was for me when I got back, it would be really easy to move on to the next story, to sort of focus on Iraq and Afghanistan and the subprime mortgage meltdown and everything else. And, and so it was sort of my um, sort of personal decision also to try to keep the story in front of our listeners. Sharon, what was your interest at this point in sort of doing another interview, hearing back, talking back to the listeners? Well, I, I'm very seldom speechless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what happened when when she wanted to talk to me again, I was like, why? You know, I didn't know I made such a. She told me, but you know, that's still over my head. I'm in a shelter. And she told me about the impact. People started writing me, and I was getting these messages on the board at the shelter. Sharon White called me, and I'm like, I don't. And you know what? It. I did feel like the world said, "Forget New Orleans and the victims of Katrina," and um, that let me know people cared. Cause I, that first interview, I thought people didn't, they don't care. It's over. It didn't affect them. Bam. You know, I did. That's how I felt. I probably never told you, but um, 
And after I started getting that mail, I, I mean, people from all over was just trying to reach out and say, I heard you, I hear you, you know. And it, it just, it, it, it gave me a reason to keep pushing. Even though they, a lot of people was talking about I was inspiring them. I'm like, yeah, right. They just don't know. I was reading those letters. Some of them, I just, they was just imprinted. I go to sleep with them. It, it, it gave me encouragement to keep going, you know. And, you know, the second interview, I was like, well, I don't know why she want to talk to me, but I'll talk. And, you know, then she mentioned Mama. No, you mentioned mom. I mean, that was the same. The, the, well, I, yeah, I said, mentioned I had not found my family. And I just made a note of it. You said, oh, and I, I've done this and, I've done and I still haven't found my mom. And I remember thinking, yeah, did, did she just deep. say it? That was deep. I didn't know how deep it was until, you know, I didn't know. Who knew? They call that burying the lead. <laughs> oh, that's what it was? Okay. Right, let's, let's go to that next piece because that's a good segue. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Michelle Norris. With the continuing story of one New Orleans evacuee we first introduced you to last month. At the time, Sharon White had fled her home in New Orleans East and was living in a shelter at the Estruma Baptist Church in Baton Rouge. She was determined to get her old life back. My property is underwater right now. And I'm going to rebuild that sucker. And I'm going to make it bigger and better. If you really do want to go back... And build your property bigger and better. That's going to take. This is going to take determination. But see, you're looking at a person that's persevered through the, the hardest. I lived 11 years in the St. Bernard Housing Project. It's not about well, it's going to take a lot. No, it's not. You get that that insurance money. You look at it. You cry about it. And guess what? You sweep it away. And you you build and you go on. Well, Sharon White finally got a chance to go back to her house today. Okay, here's my 11 years of well, all my life. Oh my. <gasps> it's just my house. Yeah. It's going to be bad. Oh, my God. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> we sent a producer with Sharon White as she arrived back at her home. We talked to her a bit later as she stood inside the front doorway, assessing the damage. Outside looks, you, you wouldn't believe it, but the inside, oh, my God, it is... I don't, I don't know. What, what are the words? I have slush and mud, at least an inch thick. I have no, some people complain about four inches of mold. I have no walls. I have to totally gut everything. It's, it, it looks like a war zone. Tell me what you see when you look inside that doorway into your home. Okay. What I see is my curio turned completely over. Your curio cabinet. Yeah, with my angels in it and a lot of little glass works. I managed to save uh, maybe three or four angels out of it. My children's pictures are ruined. I had one picture that survived because it was up really high. When you go past the living room, what's the rest of the house look oh, like? Oh, God. The, oh, man, the bathroom. My daughter's room. Oh, man, I just don't know what to tell you because I expected the worst. This is not the worst. This is beyond comprehension it, it's just I, I don't know what to say the you know i see people had the ice box out some of them cleaned them salvage them i thought i could say my mind is laying on its side right now i haven't even opened it why would i open it everything is sour is it's the kitchen is it's total it's you know all my little whatnots my clock is still going but uh has the wrong time when you look at the the water line can you figure out how high the water reached in your house 
Well, was I? My room used to sit down from the rest of the house, so it looks like it was more than half. The water line looks more than half of the house. There's no floors. I mean, there's a floor, but all you see is slush. Uh, I had just remodeled and painted <laughs> in my living room, and uh, you can't tell that right now. When you went back, Sharon, what was the the one or maybe one or two things that you hoped that you'd be able to salvage? Well, the the two angels I'm looking at, one I'm kind of lost a head, but I'm going to put it back together with a little glue. I thought I'd get some pictures, but they're not salvageable. Uh, I didn't expect this. I thought, you know, I'm strong, but I tell you, I, I broke down like a newborn when I walked in because it's not easy to see, you know, my dream. This was a dream of mine, the house. First house you ever owned. Yeah. Yeah, the first one, but it won't be the last. I'll buy something else, and I'm going to keep this one and get this one back to par. It's going to take me longer than I had thought <laughs> when I first talked to you because I thought, eh, you know, check out the she-rock, clean the floors. No, this is to I mean, I everything in my house has to, my house has to be totally gutted. It's easy to see how something like this could shake you up, Sharon, but you, it sounds like you're still determined to come back, come back to New oh, Orleans East. Oh, it's nothing but coming back. You know, it's it's going to take me longer than I had anticipated. I have to agree with, um, admit that, but I'm coming back. You know, um, depending on what monies I get, I, I have to, I can't, this is nothing I can do by myself, me and one or two or three people. This is going to take a crew. Are you insured? Yes, I am insured. Will your insurance cover the flood damage? Uh, yeah, let me tell you about the flood damage. Right now they're going through this thing saying, okay, you didn't have a flood. <laughs> what they're saying is the dam broke, so the government should pay for the damage. Right now, from what I understand, they're in court, but they're messing with the right one. They don't know who they're messing with. I've been paying since I bought this house for flood insurance. Somebody's going to do what they have to do. And that's all I got to say about that. Now, Sharon, one last question. When we last talked to you, you still had no idea where your mother was. What's happened since oh, then? Oh, oh, my God. I forgot. I'm, in all of this, oh, my God, I forgot to mention, I want to thank uh, some of your callers. Um, this lady called. Her name is Ruth. And she called me several times, and she didn't stop until she knew she found my mother. And I do know where she is. I just got to get to her. But right now I had to, I had to, you know, I took today off to try to, come to my house, but I know where my mother is. She's in Alexandria. So you, you, you know you've located her now. You just have to get to her. Yeah. And that was actually, someone actually heard you say that you couldn't find your mother on the radio and they helped you track her down. Yeah, she uh, heard the end of the interview and she heard my mom's name and she called me. And I know that's her because she mentioned my sister. I know that's her, so I'm coming, Mama. I have to <laughs> have to see my house, but I'm coming. I'm gonna get another day off, and I'm coming. So I want to thank you for. I don't know why you chose me, but all of this, a lot of things have become possible because of a lot of your listeners. And I want to thank them. And I still, I may sound a little shaking right now, but I'm not down. I'm looking at my property, but. It's going to be big and better. I'm going to still rebuild. It's going to take me a little longer trying to work and trying to do this and watch contractors because you got to be careful. But I'm going to do what I got to do. And that's to help New Orleans become New Orleans again. And 
I'm coming, Mama. I'm going. I'm going to buy me a map and I'm going to drive that drive. Now, I don't, this, my job just going to have to understand. Just like I took the day off to do my house, I got to go see my mama. Well, Sharon, you get there soon. It's been good talking to you. You keep your head up and we'll I keep will. in touch. Thank you very much. Sharon White speaking to us from her home in New Orleans. Karen, we're going to skip the next story. Is about a month and a half later when all things considered checked in with you again. But can you kind of take up the story from here about uh, going to see your mother? Um, I, uh, well, it's going to be pretty much telling what that's going to say. Um, I don't know. Um, I, did, I did get to see her thanks to the, that one listener who is very much still in my life. She's so sweet. Um, um, but I'm sorry about the tears, guys. Y'all got to understand, that's like right there, walking back into the house. Like, like I know it's been two years, but it's just like right there. That's the hard one. I don't listen to that one. Um, but, uh, and, and none of that was rehearsed. I don't know. It's just that, it was just wild. I just expected a few feet of water. Really, I I had a brick house. I'm thinking my doors was going to stop the water, but it didn't. I had over eight feet. Um, and it, 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 you know, I don't know. Mm, I don't know. And uh, by the time I got, I did get to see Mama, I got in bed with her and everything. She was, um, you know, but uh, so many listeners, let me get, I have to, the listeners of NPR, they uh, heard the interview and they wanted, a lot of them wanted to send me gas money to get there and, that I'm sending me maps for directions because I, I mean, you're looking at a person that Baton Rouge was a stretch for me, <laughs> so this is overwhelming. <laughs> but um, it, it, it was, it was something I got to see her though. She was in Alexandria. Right? Yeah, they had uh, put her. Alexandria, Louisiana. Yeah, um, I, I had several people call, but the rule um, when she called, she mentioned my sister, and I hadn't mentioned that on the radio at all. Um, my sister was the one that was with my mom, but my sister had to leave her, and she had to go find her kids. Her five kids was in the show, and, um, the Superdome also with her husband, um, and so she didn't know where they was, but she didn't leave my mom until she knew my mom was okay, but we didn't have phone lines, and we were all over. She didn't know why. I was. It was crazy. So your mother was, just to help people understand what happened, your mother was evacuated with the special needs population that was at the Superdome. From what I understand. And your sister went to go eat with her kids, but you didn't know you didn't know where your mother then landed. No, I didn't know my sister. I, the last time I talked to my sister in the Superdome, she said, oh, Mama's fine, girl, they're treating her good up here. That was before the lights and the, the dome and all that happened. Uh, everything's good. Um, I'm up here with her. They only let one person up there with the special needs. And then, then the next thing you're hearing, oh, the roof is coming off, and, and I'm like, and the phone lines were down, so it was, it was a pretty crazy time. So she had to, you know, the good thing is she didn't just dump my mom. You know, she oh, she, she was just as torn as I was. Like, at worst, she had five kids and a husband. She didn't know where they were, and it was in that madness. She stayed with my mom till she got placed in a shelter, and, and I mean, in a home, in a um, little nursing home. And uh, she had to go find her family, but she didn't know where to, she was just going tracking, trying to find her family. So you drove to Alexandria? Yeah. Um, 
me and one person, we went, um, drove over there, and um, man, it was, uh, it was, she was in full mind and body, and she tried to get out the bed to my, oh, we going to New Orleans. <laughs> and I said, Mama, you can't go home, you know, but that's all she kept talking about. She wanted to go home, you know, and I said, well, Mama, you know, and I, I, had, I was, at the time, I couldn't go nowhere with her. And I told her, I said, Mama, I'm going to get you out of here, but I can't do it right now. I, I had to work with another home to try to get her back closer to where I was. And uh, I, I eventually did that, but it, it, was, it didn't work out that way. What happened? Um, she passed. Um, I actually had uh, I looked so many places, but this one place, um, uh, he called me back and he said, "Oh, we could get her here by the first because they was gonna do ambulance to ambulance from the from and uh, that she died on the 29th. But I did get to spend some time with her and and you know in true form we used to all get in the bed with her you know and um, I don't know it was just I don't know we get in the bed with her and just and she just loved that and she but all she kept talking about was going home and I couldn't tell her. I just didn't have the heart to tell her how New Orleans was. She, she had lived through Betsy, and, you know, I was a Betsy baby. I was like a year or two in Betsy, and she used to tell me about that. That was like, yeah, right, okay, water, you know. But this wasn't Betsy. This, well, it was worse, obviously. So you never told her Not couldn't. Really I couldn't. Because she just kept on talking about, we're going to get together. Because I told her, she said, she asked, started asking about our other kids, my brothers and sisters, and I'm like, Mom, well, um, I don't know, Mom, but I'm looking for him. You know, she said, because Lisa, my sister, put her there, and she just left. I said, well, Mama, she had to go find her kids. I said, but I got you now. I said, but I'm going to get you home. Well, not home. I'm going to get you. I did tell her home, though. I said, I'm going to get you home, and, you know, we're going to be all right. But it didn't happen like that. Let me ask you about, you know, the idea of following stories over time. Usually we think of in one story that things happen in people's lives over time, and then maybe it's on the radio, and then we hear it. Of course, this story, as I said before, has this added dimension of sort of audience involvement because the story is being told with a chance for listeners to react and, and in some sense, participate along the way. Um, can you talk more about that, about some of the reaction from listeners? And also, I'm wondering, Sharon, specifically, if you, as you were doing these interviews, if you thought about that reaction and almost... I wonder if sometimes you had to sort of play the role of Sharon White. You know, listeners were starting to imagine you as this strong, positive person and what you kind of expected them, what their expectations might be. Well, a lot of people was, you know, they were writing saying how strong and determined determined I was and go get a kind of girl, and they just don't know. I was falling apart, but I had to also keep it together. Once I did get every, you know, found out where everybody was and stuff, I had to, I, be, I, I almost like had to become a mom, you know, keep everybody grounded because they, you know, once the, everybody started finding, we obviously found each other after mama died, and we had to get together with a funeral and all that. So I had to become the strong one, but, you know, like I said, a lot of those letters of encouragement um, kept me strong. And a lot of people, when I, I mentioned that I lost my angels, they start sending me angels. 
<laughs> so at the shelter, they start calling me the angel lady because I kept getting so many angels. She said, why people? I walked in one day, a guy said, why do these people keep sending you all these things? I said, it's angels. And I opened the box, and he was from, I think, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was from um, Minnesota or somewhere. And um, I said, well, I did this radio thing, and um, I mentioned that a lot. He said, Sharon White, <laughs> and I said, "Yeah," and I'm looking. And this was, <laughs> it was so funny. You said, "Y'all laughing?" That's what I was doing. And he said, "You're kidding. You, you're the angel lady. You know who you are." And I'm like, "Mister, I work in retail, right there." <laughs> it was so funny. But he wanted to take a picture with me. He went, got another Red Cross person. It was, I, I did it, but I was, I still wonder where that picture went. You know. <laughs> But it was it was that was the funny part of it. that was the, one of the funny pieces of it. I mean, I didn't know how big NPR. I mean, I knew because once my, they found my mama and Red Cross couldn't find her, and you know this was supposed to. Be. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth because I had listed her with the Red Cross, find this and find that. No, no, nothing had happened. And I mentioned my mom's name once, and this, you know, the way she says she found her and. My sister's name, she told me everything. She told me first, don't get excited. I think I found your mom, but uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look further. She said, but I think it's her. Now, now I'm on pins and needles. So when she did call, I was driving. I had to park by some Mexican restaurant. I'll never forget it because I was about to wreck, you know, and I parked. And she said, Sharon, I think your sister's name is this. And I said, yes. And she said, she's here, 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 here. They didn't want to tell me, but I pushed. I told them what was going on. And she said, Sharon, they even gave me a number. But obviously, I called Mama, couldn't answer the phone. So I had to get there. But uh, that's, that was the whole, I didn't jump the whole nother thing there. <laughs> Michelle, you know, obviously, there's a lot of good that comes in, you know, all this listener response and, and some financial help, I know. And But how does this change the kind of conversation in in the kind of, in the morning meetings that all things considered, um, Knowing money complicates things, mm-hmm. and it gets things kind of tricky. And, and can you give us a little insight into what kind of discussions you had to have about continuing these, these stories? I'm, I'm going to back up first. I'll answer the question. But first, I'm just going to note that the, the, after the third conversation, the, where, you'd found, where Ruth had found your mother, um, that I, I still, as you saw, get emotional every time I listen to that. And, um, and in the studio, we had another, someone had come to interview that day, um, and we ran long. And she was waiting outside, and the engineer was in tears, and the two producers were in tears, and the guest who was waiting for the next interview, she was, like, trying to fix her makeup because she was in tears. And, um, and then we put the piece on the air. And then immediately the mail started coming in. People found my home number. Some of the listeners called me. I'm not listed. And officially in the world, my last name is Johnson. So, you know, they... I don't know how, maybe Ruth was on the case and got, you know, my own. <laughs> and and, and your listeners were learning. Um, but people were literally calling me at home trying to figure out how to get to you. And before I get to the, your answer to your original question, I just wanted to note something that I had not worked in radio long before I had this assignment. Um, I had worked 10 years in television and 10 years in print, and so I was really uh, new to NPR and new to hosting. And this was an epiphany for me because what I realized is that our, our listeners, I, I, I suddenly am looking at the mail and fielding the phone calls, um, realized that people had this amazing collective experience 
when they listened to this piece. They were in their cars, they were in their kitchens, they pulled off from the side of the road in some cases. Someone said that dinner got burned because you know they got so engrossed in this. But it was, it was something that really helped me understand the power of radio and, and the sort of unique position that I was in after working in journalism for many years, but how radio really is um, a very different and very intimate medium. What we realize is every time we put Sharon on the air, mail would just come in by the sackful um, over the, the transom. We, we, we very rarely get snail mail. Now, Sharon would, oh, we'd get, we'd get mail that arrived via the postal service, and our inbox would fill up, so we actually had to create a separate um, account, a separate sort of bin to take in the Sharon White mail. And money does complicate things, and we, we, we have had um, some difficult conversations in our editorial meetings about what this means because people are sending us money and then we you know have to get that on to Sharon we've tried to talk about how um, how we handle that and we've also had to talk about motive and some of the diff- you know difficult things that we're talking about here is you know where when we put Sharon on the air we know that um, we know that people are going to respond in this way and is that you know, should we think about that? How should we think about that? And I have gotten to know Sharon quite well, and, and what we've decided is, we're, we're, you know, our listeners are responding to something that they hear in Sharon that is pure. Um, she's, I have come to the determination uh, with great confidence that that's not why she speaks to us to elicit a response from listeners. It's something that happens spontaneously. Uh, and, and I think that it's also how Sharon handles this with such integrity. What she hasn't told you, but what I know is that she personally responds to every one of the letters that she gets. Um, she catalogs them. She has them in notebooks, um, in folders, and she you know, keeps track of them by when they come in uh, chronologically. You heard me mention it just briefly. When she received one of the first... Um, donations from the listeners, she walked into the office at the business office at Estruma Baptist Church and said, I received a donation from an NPR listener. Um, I'd like to give, was it 10% of that to, yes. to, the, to the church? And the woman said, wait a minute, you're giving us money and you're living in the shelter? And she said, well, that's just the way that I was raised, that if I'm given something, I give something back. And so we have um, decided that, that her motives are pure and that our motives are pure in this case, that we are trying to help our listeners understand the continuing saga of New Orleans and how difficult it still is for people who still live there. And what we've done is tried to remove ourselves from actually handling the money so that NPR is not involved in that because that does get complicated. And so we usually figure out a way so that if people contact us, it's bundled and goes directly um, to, to Sharon. But it is something that, that we, did, you know, we did talk about and wrestle with a bit. Let me turn the question a little bit to you, Sharon. Um, of course, journalistically, that's one concern is once money is involved, does that change what you might say in an interview on the air? But let me ask a different question, which is, Knowing that you're being interviewed periodically and that you're, you have this audience that's kind of waiting to hear from you, do you feel, did you ever feel like you were leading your life differently? No. No, I, I still do the same thing. I'm still me. 
I still, you know, um, you know, it, it didn't, you know what, at first, the first one, the first very first donation, I, it, it was, I was overwhelmed. Because number one, if you listen to any of, any one of them, I never said, oh, I need this, I need that, I need this, send, send, send. I never asked for a dime. So when I did get something, I was like, why is this? And then I went, I actually went talk to a psychiatrist about it. And he said, Sharon, if you send that back, because I was going to send it back. Because I showed it to him. I said, look, what am I going to do with that? I didn't ask him for that. And he said, you know what, Sharon, if you send that back, it's like, he said, if they couldn't afford to send that to you, they wouldn't have sent it. And um, he said, they want to help. And, you know, you know, you heard about the Red Cross thing, you know, how much money they got, and it wasn't reaching the people that. So, like I said, for a lot of people, and they wrote me and told me this, I'm not just saying it, I put a face to it. They wanted to, they wanted to help some in some fit form or fashion. And helping me that in whatever way, just sending an angel, because that was the... I have angels you would not believe. My collection paled to the collection I have now. I mean, beautiful, expensive ones. <laughs> beautiful. You also have the angel that, that she has yeah. an angel that has the wat- the Katrina water in it. Yeah, still. And so when you turn it upside down, you actually you can hear it. Like a snow globe. It's, it's, it's <laughs> amazing. That water is still in there. But... Um, the money, you know, and like I said, when you say the money, I don't, I don't want to leave here with everybody. Oh, she's rich. I'm yet homeless. I thank God for every dime that was sent to me, and it did help. Oh, God, and it's still helping. I'm, I have to be honest, because one lady just bought me a ceiling fan, and I let her know that. I think that she sent me a Home Depot card. That's going a little far, but I mean, <laughs> that's how I do it. You know, to let them know I'm not going out on the town on your money. You know what I'm saying? Because I work, I. I have my own, so um, you just you wanted to help. I, I bought a ceiling fan with the card. I, I sent it to her, and I see I let her know you're helping the family get home one ceiling fan at a time, one family at a time, and that was you know. And some respond back, and some don't. But I let I, I always send letters of thanks, and I've never asked for a dime. And I don't think it changed me. I don't I, I don't do the interviews for money. You know, there's some that I didn't get anything, but maybe a, a you go girl. You know, um, I didn't ask for anything. And um, can I ask something? Mm-hmm. Do you <laughs> do you prepare for an interview differently? I mean, the first time that we put you in front of a microphone, it was a foreign experience for you. Now we've had a series of conversations, so it's it's not foreign um, to sit in front of a microphone. Is that how is that different for you when you get a call from us and say, Sharon, we'd like to catch? Well, you. I'm a little more comfortable because, and also, I know who I'm talking to. When they called me for this, the first thing I asked is, Michelle's going to be there, I'm going to be fine. Because, you know, I know she's, you know, professional, and, I mean, we're not going home together, nothing like that, but I have gotten so comfortable with her. And you, you know what I'm saying? You know, you, you, she makes it easy for me to be up here because, trust me, y'all just don't know. <laughs> I, am, I am a manager, so I have to deal with a lot of people, and I can talk to people, but... Michelle makes this part easy because when I leave here, I'm uh, this is not me. You know, I'm not a public person. But I interview really. hundreds of people all the time, and many of them, many of their stories are poignant. Um, I interviewed a, a boy who climbed uh, Mount Everest without legs. I interview families who've suffered great loss. No one has, no one I have personally interviewed has connected with listeners in quite this way. And I can't, I've tried to figure it out. I wonder if you have thought about that. Why, what do you you think it is about 
your story and the way you tell your story that connects you know with what? the audience. Just like you said, I was listening to church at that, that time. I am a uh, prayer. You know, I ain't going to act like I'm the biggest Christian in the world, nothing like that, guys. But I'll just tell you, I believe God has a way of putting people in place. And for this all to happen the way it happened, it's, it's I, I can't explain it either. You know, all I can say is you when you approached me, you see, I didn't want to talk. It wasn't I wasn't like, oh, come talk to me, you know, and all the response and the people who I'm still in touch with, that's that's uh some avid listeners of yours. Um, you know, I, I still thank God. I, I guess I'll end it saying God put people in place for different things. And all that had to be for all the stuff that happened. How, I mean, I don't know if I would have found my mom had I not said her name on the radio. You understand what I'm saying? So honestly, all that had to be put in place because I had been looking for mama like a week and something. And I mentioned her name one day on your radio and she was found the next day. And, you know, all, and then the, 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 my angel collection, I mean, I wasn't going to be buying angels at the time, but all of a sudden I started getting angels. You know, Joe, it, it, this is an unusual relationship for me, an unusual experience, because for me, in, um, not so much in television, but when I was a print reporter, I often worked in long form. I'd worked for months on a project, on a big series. And it is my experience that the person that you meet and as a documentarian, you probably experience this also, the person that you meet when you start out on the project, on the journey, is very different than, than the person that you've come to know at the end of that journey. It's almost like peeling um, an artichoke or an onion. When you first meet someone, uh, particularly if they understand journalism or they understand storytelling, they're very aware in some ways of... Um, it's, it's almost like spontaneous... Um, censorship or redaction or something that they, they are aware in some way of how what they say is going to um, appear on the radio or how it's going to appear in print. And so there are these series of filters that you've kind of got to break through to get to the essence of the person that you're trying to get to know. And um, particularly when I worked in print, if I were on a long series, I found that the first two or three notebooks that I had were useless because people were sort of telling me what they thought I maybe wanted to hear as a journalist or maybe telling me a version of their life that, that you know, the version of the, their, their sort of better selves that they wanted to be. And you had to spend enough time with them to sort of get through the layers and get to that comfort zone. The odd experience with Sharon, and I would find myself sometimes, you know, I'd call you, and yes, I was just checking up on you, <laughs> But also, I was also saying, you know, I'm just going to call her in the middle of the week to see if the Sharon that I encounter on a Wednesday afternoon is the Sharon that I encountered in the studio. Um, I just kind of wanted to see all the different facets. And I just have rarely, and I might actually say never, encountered someone for whom the filters just either weren't there or just faded away so quickly. I mean, the raw emotions that you heard in... um, the first piece, the second piece, certainly the third piece. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of experience for me as a journalist. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, it, there still is time for our relationship to evolve, your relationship with listeners to evolve. The, your story is still unfolding. You're not back in your house. But I wonder for you, as the person on the other side of the microphone, if that is... Um, if that if you were almost a prisoner of that in some way if if you 
have, if the listeners have gotten to know a certain Sharon White and you feel that you have to give them that version of Sharon White. And you can't let us down anymore. Well, in a, well, in a way, because, you know, it's been up and down, you know, with the house. It's, you know, and, but I, I, you know, I have so many people, other than myself, I'm the first one, wants me to get home. And, and you know, they, they won't let me stop. You know, they keep saying, you go, girl, fight for this and fight for that, you know, because you know about the cop, I think mm-hmm. they're going to find out about that. You know, because I keep going into these stumbling blocks, unfortunately. Look like bad luck is just following. It's just like something's trying to keep me out of my house constantly. Um, but I'm... But let me just, if I can just add to that, but if you got to the point, and I'm not, I certainly hope you never, you never get to this point, but if you did, and you realize that, you know what, New Orleans isn't for me, or, or you, you felt that you had to share something that was sort of different from what our listeners would expect from you. They, they expect sass and bravado. And if, if, I, if you're at a particularly low place, do you feel like you could, you're free to express that, or do you feel that the listeners have now come to expect something else from you? Well, um, I just look at it. You know what? I, I, whatever situation you, y'all wind up catching me in, and I know that y'all may not be a word, but that, that's a beautiful New Orleans word. <laughs> um, whatever situation I'm in, that's what I'll say. You know, I, I, it's not rehearsed for me. And see, I don't know if some people are like, oh, yeah, say this, say that. No, it's never been like that. You know, um, Michelle asks the questions, what's ever going on? I tell her the truth. If somebody responds, fine. If not, fine. At least I, I feel like I'm still keeping the story in the air, which it needs to be. And um, I'm... You know, I'm keeping it in the air, and and it's helping me get it out. You know, it. I can't explain that part. Um, when I tell my story to NPR, the continual story, because I, I have so many people from the shelter days that still, once they found out my new email, they, you know, I write them and let them know, and they, we emailing. Hey, hey, girl. I wish I could have brought it, but it's 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 real nice to have some people care, because it's it's almost like the city doesn't care. Almost, I hate to say it, you know, it's a lot of negativity going around. So when you got other people that's that's caring about you getting home, it, it makes the fight a little more, you know, it makes it like it actually can be won. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the second half of this episode of the Third Coast Pocket Conference. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. 
Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I was going to play another story, but we're sort of running out of time. and want to make sure there's time for questions. The, the only other thing I would add is you were talking about sort of what makes all of us in this room, I think, are interested in what makes a good subject, a good talker, a good person to interview. And it's very interesting, I don't know if any of you were here yesterday at the session we did, but these are really kind of opposite examples. Rebecca Peterson, who was Mary Beth Kirshner's uh, documentee yesterday, was a very reluctant subject, very quiet, very kind of, I, I call them like talk-inners, because people were kind of like reluctant and, and you know, sort of inward, and, and you're, Sharon, you're a classic talk-outer. Um, but that's not, I think, what you're getting at, not what makes listeners connect, people connect. I think there is something about people know when someone is saying something for the first time, when they're thinking of it on the spot, when they're coming up with it, when it feels like, as I started out the session talking about, that something is happening. And I think that's part of it. I think that people get a sense when you're speaking that, uh, that they're just, they're just get within any filters and that they're experiencing what you're experiencing. And that's, that's not something that's always easy to communicate. Um, well, I don't know what business she was in with the young lady that you just mentioned. I'm a manager, and I have to talk to people. So talking has never been a problem for me. <laughs> I have to talk to people um, all day, every day. And um, that's been for years. So, um, But talking about myself is a little hard, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> But, like I said, Michelle makes it so easy. Um, all I could say is it, when you approach a story, and this is what I, I think happened. I don't know, you know, y'all the journalists. But when you approach a story, you, you don't know what's going to happen. Like she was saying about the onions and stuff, when you peel in layers. Um, who knew it would go this far? I'm thinking the first one was it. And then by the, I'm really, after I went into the house, I'm thinking, that's it. It's just, you know, ongoing. But when you approach a story, you don't know. And I think it's her compassion, I feel, because, you know, I don't feel used in this whole thing. I know I'm a story, don't get me wrong, but I don't feel used. Um, she, I honestly believe she cares about the situation, not, you know what I'm saying, the whole situation, the, the New Orleans, me, getting home, and her listeners do the same. And, and so uh, as you guys are going to be storytellers, sometimes, you know, it, it's good to look and, you know, 
you, you get a story. I, I just tell from my point of view, you get a story, examine it, and if you feel it's something, because I, I uh, pretty much feel Michelle is uh, doing this a lot on her own, fighting to keep this, keep me in, to so the listeners can, um, you know, see what what's going on with me. But sometimes you may have to fight for a story that you believe in. You know, honestly, believe that's what she's doing. I don't know. Only she can answer that. I don't know. But uh, she she makes me feel like I'm not a story. That's why it's easy to talk to her. And it's, she's keeping it alive. She's keeping it open. And people still care. And and she still cares. And that's what makes it easy. Sharon's house is, is as much a part of this story as Sharon is. And what I have tried to do, and I didn't even realize I was doing it until I actually went back and looked at some of the journals that I keep, is, is what your house represents. And, you know, when we talk about people losing their homes, you can replace a home. But what I hoped I was able and am able to do with these conversations is help people understand what a home is. It is a, it is a repository for memories. It is a place where you go to fill your soul. It is a place where you get wisdom from elders. In Sharon's case, and the story that, um, and I've tried to get you to tell the story on the radio, and for some reason you won't do it. But she, a story that she told me um, once when we were not in front of a microphone uh, has lived with me, and she said that when she was living in the St. Bernard Projects, on Sundays she used to dress her kids up. Mm-hmm. And she would get them on the bus, and it was, what, two bus transfers? Yeah. And she would take them over to a neighborhood of very nice houses, and they would be in their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. They'd be dressed up. And they would walk through the neighborhood. And they would point, she would point to houses. And she would ask them, now, who do you think lives there? And I haven't been able to get you to tell the rest of the story on a microphone. But maybe you can finish it. Well, I just wanted them to see that um, there was something other than where we was. You know, um, if you work hard, if you do the right thing, if you strive to just do more and be more, and um, that you can live in these type of houses. You know, um, I, I guess I was just always different in that. I didn't want my kids to get locked into the project mentality. And um, that's what I did. I did that. And see, the dress-up part was to fit in. You know, we couldn't go in our regular little dirty clothes. or what, not. We weren't dirty, but, you know, we couldn't go in our regular clothes. I wanted them to look like we lived in the neighborhood as we were walking around there. So, um um, that's why I did it. And so uh, when, I, when I lost it to Katrina, you know, it, it just was so much more than just a materialistic thing because I did the right thing. I, I'm telling my kids, do this, do this, do this, and you'll have this. And I did that. And when I lost it, it was like, did I lie to them all those years? You know, because now they're grown. You got to understand, they were like six. I had four. Well, how many? <laughs> four. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's funny. <laughs> okay. I had, I had three at the time. And I used to, you know, that, that was a part of uh, just letting them know that you can do more. And, and I think a lot of parents need to do that in those type of situations. That's a whole other story, though. It's just for, it was just for encouragement to let them know they can be big, bigger and better. We, we are sort of running out of time, but we want to do some questions. If, we, if you want to stay late, we can do some extra questions, but all the way in the back. Yes, uh, this is a question from Michelle. By the way, this is the best journalism I've heard on the network, some of the best, at least on HBC. It's, it's mesmerizing. 
and you're not the only one who's crying, we all were crying. And to me, this is the best way to tell a story instead of all the reactive way that we generally tell. This is, this is the way we, we can tell what's going on in New Orleans. I had two questions, though. One, is the reason that you didn't go back to, to, to meet with you when you saw the house, was mm -hmm. that because you just couldn't leave? That's the first question. The second question is, and I don't know if this is true, but you talk about your reaction, how when you came back, how you felt. You say you have journals. Have you, and I'm not sure what you put on your website, but have you thought about sharing how this is having an effect on you as a journalist, as a person? And I don't know if that's something that sells, but I'm wondering if that's been discussed and if that's happened. Uh, second question first. Yes, it has. It has been discussed. I did when we went back for Mardi Gras. I did one sort of blog um, on Sharon, on our relationship, um, and we have talked about sort of doing something, you know, more with that because I do kind of sometimes emote, sometimes vent at the end of the day in my journal, um, and I'm kind of old-fashioned in that way that I tend to do it with with pen and you know beautiful little books as opposed to doing it on the keyboard because I'm on the keyboard all day long. So it's something that we've talked about, but we've just talked about it. The first question, um, did I go back? Why didn't I go back? It was, it was a matter of scheduling. Um, they had opened up. The reason that Sharon had taken the day off from work is they had opened up New Orleans East rather spontaneously to let residents go back for one day to get a quick look. And it was, I think, six hours they had. So they could go in, assess the damage, get you know what they could from their homes, and then get back out. And it just wasn't possible for, because of scheduling matters for me to get down there. Thank you. Um, I understand that the two of you have a relationship and you, you know each other and you trust each other, but I wonder if um, Michelle being black helped um, help you, you know, open up or, you know, for you to trust her initially when you were sweeping and finally decided to talk and you were, you know, unhappy with the media. And I also wonder if NPR considered race in terms of access and people opening up to you when they sent you down. Well, <clears throat> the um, issue of color didn't, it doesn't matter because the, to believe it or not, the majority of people that write me white people, white people, and I have pictures, I have uh, their jobs, I mean, they have the cooler with the, the uh, crew, so, I mean, so it, it doesn't matter, like I said, I'm a manager, you know, um, I deal with all kinds, all, all colors of people, and it doesn't matter, it wasn't that, it was, like I said, it's, it's, it's continued because I think she's sincere. If I if I if I thought she wasn't sincere, I, I think I'd have ended this long time ago, you know. But I know I I know she is. I know she is. I, I think race was a consideration in this case. Um, uh, I knew New Orleans. I'd spent a lot of time in the city, um, and I think it's it's not so much a question of race, but more class and experience. Um, when I went to New Orleans, um, there were certain, there's the sort of rhythm and patois of life that wasn't foreign to me. Um, I knew what it was like to have red beans and rice every Tuesday. Um, I knew that jambalaya essentially meant clean out the refrigerator and throw whatever you have in some rice and cook it up. Um, and I, I think that this is actually 
speaks to the importance of have pe- having people in the newsroom who have lots of different kinds of experiences. Uh, because in, um, you know, when Sharon talked about living in the projects and working her way out of the projects, that wasn't something that was like foreign to me. You know, it was something that I, I understood and I understood the honor and the dignity of that. I understood, you know, when I talk about the house being a metaphor, I understand that perhaps in maybe a different way. And I'm not saying that Robert and Melissa would not have gone down and done excellent work. Um, they both did. Uh, Robert has done fantastic work out of New Orleans, and Melissa was in Waveland, Mississippi, and they both did wonderful, wonderful work. But in the way that our night tables all look different, our CD magazines all look different, our life experiences all look different, it means that if we all went to cover the same story, it's going to come back with a slightly different shading or a different hue. And I think in this case, we had the benefit of having three hosts and three hosts with different kinds of experiences. And I think that um, we bought back something different, and I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that the fact that I'm a woman and an African-American woman and the parent of postal workers and you know, and someone who grew up um, in a solidly blue-collar family didn't um, in some way color my experience and um, my eye and my ear as a journalist. It does. And it's, I see it as part of being multilingual um, because... You know whether I'm in New Orleans or whether I'm covering Wall Street, um, I sort of kind of see things. It allow, I think it's part of my strength. It allows me to see things from lots of different vantage points. I think it did make a difference. Question. Um, I'm real curious about the issue of um, objectivity and activism and, and advocacy. And I'm just wondering, you talked about motivations, and at one point you had this realization that you could continue with the story because all motives were poor. And it, it, uh, there just seems to be a difficulty sometimes when you track someone over time that you really become an advocate for them. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you balance your decision as a journalist to be objective with the fact that you have this great story, but you kind of are becoming an advocate for this person. Do you embrace that, or do you just... Well, you, you know, in, in this case, you try to cover all... I mean, there are some questions that I've asked, Sharon, that you, you didn't hear all of the conversations, but sometimes you, you ask difficult questions. You know, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Um, and you're advocating for the person in the sense that you're putting their story out there as opposed to someone else's story. But the, the sort of journalistic in- integrity, the truth in journalism, is that you look at their story, and if you feel if there are questions about um, how they've handled... A particular situation, how they've handled their business, um, you you try to kind of push back a little bit so that you're you're providing the balance in that sense. It's one person's story, but you're making sure that you're um, not just asking about the sort of brightness in their life, but also sort of taking them to you know taking them through the ups and the downs. And so it's not pure advocacy in that you're just sort of painting a one-sided picture of what they're going through. Um, that came up in one of our last conversations when Sharon was talking about crime and, um, and whether or not to go back go back, and, and whether or not to, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what how you call it. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be packing. Packing. Right. Yeah. Well, what and happened, they, they broke in my house. I had got, almost gotten to the sheetrock stage. I was, my contract, they told me I'd probably be home by October. And they broke into my home and took all the copper out the walls and all the copper off the plumbing, the heating, the air conditioning. And by then I was on the heels of a surgery, so my house is just sitting. So, um, you know, some people would just give up. 
you know, I had to pray a lot, but I, it just made me angry. You know, um, I went to a couple of people and tried to ask some questions. I found out who did it, and uh, they had been they've been uh, wreaking havoc in the neighborhood. And uh, I'm going back. I'm going back. So this conversation somehow created some tension between you. Uh, she had said that she was planning that if she went back that she would likely arm herself and I asked her you know is that really a good idea is that something that that you know you should be doing do you have I mean all of us didn't make it on the tape do you have a license for that is that so what you try to do is make sure that you're you're pushing back and not just presenting the sort of brightest part of of the story. And in the sense of advocacy, I mean, this is Sharon is not the only story that we do on New Orleans. So this she is part of a tapestry of New Orleans coverage, broader New Orleans coverage. So it's it's one person's story, one person's quest to get back to the city and and what that means. Um, I would actually challenge in that I, I don't think it is advocacy journalism. I think it is it is a sort of serialistic conversation that allows you to see a, a sort of get a deeper picture, a more penetrating picture of someone's life than, than frankly, than we generally provide in the kind of um, coverage where we talk to someone and we often don't follow up. The other moment that we met Brenda, um, you know, listening to her story again, it made me wonder, you know, what, where did she land? She didn't, I actually had been in touch with her. She didn't go back to New Orleans. But we so often present you with re really interesting people and then we don't follow up on their stories. In this case, we have. Um, we followed through on that, and it's not necessarily advocacy. I, I see it as, um, as sort of, sh you know, sharpening the lens a bit instead. And just to follow up on something that you were talking about earlier, has there have you had to fight very hard to keep these going? Um, it, you know, we I haven't had to fight. Um, I, I've had to, you know, sometimes remind people. Our listeners, however, this is not everyone's cup of tea. You've gotten a lot of, you know, positive response. We also have listeners like, oh, no, not another one of these conversations. Not another story about New Orleans. A lot of listeners are done with New Orleans, and they let us know that. And they feel that we pay far more attention to New Orleans than we have to any, you know, to other disasters in this country and in other parts of the world. And, and you sort of understand that. I mean, New Orleans is a tough story. As I told you yesterday, if this were, you know, a, a, a literary story, we would be sort of rounding the corner now and heading towards, you know, some sort of brightness that we would be, the arc of the story would take us to a better place. And unfortunately, that's just not what's happening. So as journalists, we have a challenge. Do we, do we look, do we continue to cast our gaze on New Orleans and look without blinking? It's a, I feel like it's a responsibility. Um, I also think it's an incredible journalistic opportunity to cover this rich um, and yes, painful and devastating story. Um, and so we've we've gotten a tremendous amount of pushback from listeners. One thing that did happen, though, is you know going back to our conversation about you know what actually happens in that room and why is it that every time Michelle sits down in a studio with Sharon that you know we we have this these kinds of conversations. What is it that's going on? Uh, my executive producer actually came and sat in on one of the interviews because he wanted to he wanted to sort of see the journalistic process. He wanted to see the interview process to kind of understand understand her and understand what happened in that space. And what was his? Um, you know, he, he came away and he, he, he asked me a, a series of questions about whether I called her beforehand, how much I talked to her beforehand, um, whether when I sit down in front of the microphone, is that is it fresh or have I talked to her? And generally, I don't talk to you. And in fact, you know, even in Chicago, I knew you were here and I was trying not to spend too much time with you because um, I want... I want the 
the energy to happen in the space between the microphones. So my producer, Andrea Shu, is usually the person who will do most of the setup um, so that what you hear is, is generally what's actually happening in that space, even though we're usually not in the same space. I'm usually in Washington, and you're usually in, in Louisiana. You know, as, as a producer listening to all these, I, I listened to, all, to six of them in a row, and um, as a producer, it was really interesting. I, I learned that, um, you know, even though most of them are just sort of a two-way interview, there is so much of a narrative arc in these, and there is a very similar one, which is sort of check-in, 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 and then there's a point two-thirds through, most of them, where you kind of break form a little bit and, like the the packing a weapon, um, and say something, then maybe kind of push her, nudge her a little bit, and then Sharon, you, that's the moment where you aren't just reporting your life, but it's like, yeah, I know, but... And it happens in each one, and it's a... If, if some of you want to go and listen to these online, I think you can probably check the NPR website and kind of follow the, the links to all of them. But uh, it's nice to kind of see these as little radio pieces as well and see how in an interview there is, you know, an arc is important and a sort of, you know, development, all these things that we think about in terms of storytelling are still so true. You know, the hardest thing about the conversations with Sharon is I, I never know how I'm going to let the piece go. The goodbye is always the hardest thing because you have, you know, inevitably, Sharon, just, it's like full throttle emotion coming through the radio. And I realize, okay, I've got to, I've got to wrap this up because I know that it's, you know, it's going to be six minutes or eight minutes and we have to have some finality to this. And it's always, always, always the most difficult thing because, you know, after this, what do you, okay, Good luck with that, toodles. I mean, what do you, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really difficult, and it's one of the hardest, um, it, it literally is one of the hardest things that I do in the studio is, is try to figure out how to do that very careful pirouette, you know, off the vault and land and, and let the listeners down because what I realize is that you have been on this. You've gone through a, a series of emotions also, and how we how we actually get to that point and say Michelle is being nice. I'm a rambler. And <laughs> see, y'all, because you know it's true, because I've been doing it here, and she's being, she's being real nice, and I've been told I'm, I ramble. So she knows not when to cut me off, so to speak, but she, she, she knows I have to, she got to do whatever she just said she do. So, and it's, is, um, so we should wrap up soon, but maybe if there's just one or two more burning questions. Just... First off, thank you for doing the work and doing the story. So can I say that? Um, do you has has the story, or how has the story affected for you, Sharon, your relationship with family, friends, neighbors? Has there been any kind of change as a result of being covered within your community? How you perceive yourself, how they perceive you, however that rolls. There's a few people that, um, you know, it's, you know, when you're down, you have a lot of friends, you know. And, and I mean, this whole situation is a down one, but um, it has its up points. And uh, there's some people that's not so happy for me to be here in Chicago talking, to, you know, because of their pieces. But, you know, you find out who your friends are, you know. Um, so, uh, you, you know, I tend to try to stay away from a few people because... They don't understand, you know, it's not that I'm popular because in New Orleans, for the channels that I listen to never don't know about me. Nobody knows about me in New Orleans, believe it or not. My friends, a few that, you know, my family, they, you know, they're happy for me. 
Um, so um, I just stay away from the people that's that's negative. That's what you have to do in life, even in life period. You stay away from the negativity, and anything that's positive, you go towards. You know, this goes to your question about cultural sensitivities. Um, my editors asked me, why doesn't Sharon, Sharon has a family, she mentions her family, why doesn't she lean more on her family? What I discovered in my conversations with Sharon, not always on the microphone, is that Sharon, and do you mind if I? No. Sharon has, has distanced herself in some ways from some friends and family members because she was a striver, and in order to you know, save her money and get out of the projects, she had to distance herself from people who, who weren't going to help with that, and, and in some ways who were obstacles. And in the newsroom, you know, I, editors would say, well, what, you know, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers. And it's like, well, that's not always productive for Sharon because going back there means that she may not get out. And, and that's, that's something that I understood. She didn't have to explain it to me. I, I got that. You know, I, could, I didn't judge her on that. I completely got that. And what her pride is probably preventing her from saying is that that's... Well, and that's been difficult. They just got some people that's stuck in life. You know, I refuse to be stuck in life. I want to do more and be more. And had I listened to some of the people, friends and family, I would have been one of the people. I, my story would have been different. It had been almost the same, but I'd have been in, still been in a project. I wouldn't be a homeowner. It would have been the same but different. So um, I had to break away from that, and, and that's pretty much what it is. One last question. Um, you mentioned the media in the beginning and how you, um, this is for Sharon, how you were disappointed in the coverage of, of New Orleans. And I, I agree. How is, your, how is your perception changed since you now have, there's a media outlet that's covered it in a way that's, that's more dignifying, it seems to you. How has your perception changed about the media's coverage of, of Katrina? Hmm. I think the media, they did a, bad story at the beginning. I mean, they, they use one type of people. That's what I heard. But right now, everybody, and I'm pretty much some of you guys, um, you, know, you, you know, it's over. It's done. It's two years. It's not over and done for people like myself. You know, um, yes, I ran into another whole issue that had nothing to do with Katrina with them stealing my copper, but I'm still out of my house, some fit form of fashion. Um, there's neighborhoods, tons and tons of neighborhoods in, my, in New Orleans that's not back. So if you ask me what, how do I feel the media is doing, you hear a story or two every blue moon on the, you know, when it, like the two-year, uh, two-year-and-a-half year, I guess you'll hear, maybe three-year. But, you know, I honestly believe... Once a month, somebody should be doing a story in New Orleans. Not at, not at Bourbon Street. Don't go to Superdome because it looks like New Orleans is up and back. That's not the case. There's a lot of people still trying to get home for whatever reasons. So um, I think the media can do a little more. I know a lot of people have, have um, burned out, but you got to understand, you know, it's easy to leave here and go home for a lot of you guys, and I'm happy for you. That's beautiful. But a lot of people still can't. And, and I'm lucky enough to be 20 minutes from my house, even though I, I can't go live there. But there's people all there's people here in Chicago, you know. Um, there's people all over still wants to go back home. So I think the media should do something about some of these empty neighborhoods instead of Bourbon Street. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And um nuance cuz I mean I don't go to Bourbon Street. You know, you're not going to see me on Bourbon Street. I've been in the Superdome, what, twice in my life. So, you know, I think they could do a little more in keeping that story alive. And that's why I talk to NPR. And I'll continue to talk. Even once I'm in my house, Yeah, I'm going to write everybody that wrote me and let them know I'm home, take pictures, out, you know, in front of it. But I'm also, you know, I've committed myself to, to do that, to fight for the other Sharon White. You know, that's just me. Sharon, it's a very brave thing to tell your story to so many people on the radio, especially so many times. And uh, I think it's also a very brave thing to come to a group like this and to kind of deconstruct the whole thing. So thank you very much. Thank both of you. Thank you. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Bye.